How much do you know about the ocean? Most everyone can pull out a fun fact about the ocean somewhere, but would you consider yourself to be ocean literate? My name is Louis Colabertolo. I am a graduate student at the University of Guelph, trying my absolute best to get a PhD in food science, and I can say with confidence I'm maybe not ocean literate. In my free time, I like to talk to other graduate students about what they study, and I can say with good confidence that Lisa Chen is ocean literate. In fact, she wants you to be ocean literate too. And a big part of ocean literacy is addressing the mess. And the mess, as we know, is the pollution of the ocean. In fact, Lisa has a lot to say about microplastics and another very tricky piece of pollution. And maybe even more spooky than it is tricky. I'm talking about ghost gear. Listen to Lisa say something about it, though. So ghost gear actually loves abandoned or discarded fishing gear that are in our ocean. So why I'm interested in them is that they are the number one litter item by weight. That's right. You heard it here. Ghost gear, like discarded fish nets, is the number one littered item by weight in the ocean. And that is a really good party fact. I've actually used it multiple times since Lisa has told me. But if you want more party facts so your friends think you are an ocean literate genius, you're going to have to listen to the rest of the episode. But while you're listening, keep in mind that we are still both graduate students and we don't know everything, which is why you're listening to an episode of We Know Some Stuff. Hi, Lisa. How are you doing today? Hi, Lewis. I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. I, I'm so happy to have you here because we are going to talk about something a little bit different than our normal type of topics. But before we get into it, could you give us your educational history? Yeah, I have a Bachelor of Science major in Biology and minor in Neuroscience, focusing more on the evolutionary um, ecology side of things. Since graduating, I've actually been doing a lot of work in marine biology. Um, and on top of that, I have a certificate in teaching English as a second language, and I have also spent a lot of time doing that. And because of my experience teaching and working in marine biology, I realized to save the world, I need a more interdisciplinary approach to like understanding the ocean. So currently I'm doing a master of marine management at Dalhousie University, which is an in- interdisciplinary master's degrees focusing on marine management. So right off the bat, you're, you're saving the world. You, you're, you're digging in and you're saving the world. I'm trying to. <laughs> All right. That's the goal. I like to hear that. So marine management, I am guessing, and I, and I feel that I'm pretty confident about this guess. I'm guessing it's not about talking about performance strategies with dolphins and how to, you know, vertically integrate your product line with the seahorses. <laughs> I don't think so. So what, in general, could you just define what marine management is? I think marine managers have a lot of different roles that we can play. In general, as you mentioned, we cannot manage anything in the wild. What we can manage are humans. So we can manage our human activity such that 
what we are doing are actually sustainable for the ocean. So that's basically my goal is to tackle sustainability and learning more about how I can work with stakeholders to manage the ocean more sustainably. All right. So we hear a big buzzword, sustainability. But let's back up before we get into the idea of sustainability. I think... um... If you're listening to a science radio show or a podcast, you probably are not going to be shocked to hear this. But the ocean's not doing great, is it? No. Yeah, that's sad. What What do we mean? Like, what What's bad about the ocean? It's still pretty wet. I'm I'm positive <laughs> of that. What When we say like the ocean's not doing great, what What do we mean? It's not only wet; it's also very salty. Um, oh, that too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so. Currently, there's a, a lot of different issues facing the ocean. I I would say one of the big issues is overfishing. Um, with the development of commercial fishery, we are no longer harvesting fish or any seafood at a level that the population can renew itself. So therefore, being sustainable. On top of that, with climate change and increasing um, CO2 level in the atmosphere, our oceans are also going through a process called ocean acidification, where the pH level of the ocean is dropping. And because of that, that is basically changing all the marine chemistry, leading to a lot of uh, marine organisms with, with shells, that the acidity is actually weakening their shell. And another issue that I would like to look at is actually the issue of marine litter or plastic, mostly, that a lot of them actually can form land-based basalts that enter the ocean and it's not going away because it takes at least hundreds of years for them to decompose. And by decompose, I mean they are just breaking down into smaller pieces of plastic. It eventually enters our food chain and goes out onto our plates. And on top of that, when wildlife ingests all this plastic, it ended up um, either choking them or starring them to death, or they can cause physical entanglement issues and, yeah, killing them. So those are the three major issues that I think are challenging the ocean. There are, of course, other issues like uh, ocean noise that people don't think about associated with, with the ocean. So, for example, <clears throat> the ocean is a very noisy place. Um, because light can only reach about a depth of 200 meters, life underwater cannot rely on vision as we do on land. So we ended up relying a lot on sound to communicate. But then because we are wanting our space on land, a lot of our new exploration starts in the ocean and what we so-called the blue economy. Um, which causes an increase in human activity in our ocean. And all this noise is disrupting the natural sound that that all our animals would lie on to communicate with each other. So just like when you are at a party, it gets very noisy and you cannot hear your friends anymore, but they would lie on the sound to be able to find mate, find food, find habitat. So yeah, we are, they are wanting out of... Uh, a safe and quiet space to to live, essentially. 
That that's such an interesting concept. I would have never thought that ocean volume or or noise would have been a thing. I know that my uh, next door neighbor vacuums their apartment three times a day. <laughs> um, and I think they go to work around seven because the vacuum, the first vacuum, starts around six thirty. Um, but it's such an interesting concept. And now that we have like a lot of different tourism things, uh, you know, boat rides and cruises and things like that, we're contributing to the noise of the of uh, the ocean. Yep. Um, which I understand that that's not necessarily your focus. So let's roll back into the concept of uh, waste, garbage, trash that's going into the oceans. Um, and I think before we dig into it a little bit, I, it's worth clarifying that when we talk about plastic in the ocean, we're not always talking about a floating milk jug or, you know, a, a large tarp or something like that. We've seen pictures of that, you know, the floating garbage island, and it's terrible, and we all hate it. But then you mentioned something about microplastics. Mm-hmm. Can you explain that a little bit? So microplastics are basically plastics less than five millimeters in diameter. And some of them, it might be um, primary microplastics. So they, they are considered like this little nurdles, which which are um, what we make plastic out of. Or it can come from um, big pl- pieces of plastic so when they are in in nature undergoing natural weathering and tearing they started to break apart into smaller pieces so eventually they will end up with pieces that are small enough less than five millimeters that we cannot see regularly with our naked eyes unless we are watching out for them but the issue is because they are also so small animals also have trouble seeing them yeah sometimes they can get mistaken for food as well and eventually enter into their biological systems and then if we are eating them you said earlier that it ends up on our plates yep so if they eat plastic and we eat them we are also eating plastic Yep, essentially, yes. And on top of that, we are not eating the same level of plastic that they are eating. So think about animals at the bottom of the food chain. Say they eat, they eat two pieces of plastic, but then the next fish up may eat like five of this animal. Now this, this fish has 10 pieces of plastic in their belly. So this is undergoing what we call a bioaccumulation or biomagnification that like the level of plastic um, is going up as it goes up the food chain. So essentially, if we are eating bigger and bigger fish, (laughs) we are ingesting more of this plastic that got accumulated on the bottom of the food chain. And I think that we can all agree that eating plastic is not good. No, they have, like, other than their physical and physiological impact that I mentioned, they are also toxic, right? When they flow around in the ocean for such a long period of time, they accumulate whatever toxic we've been putting into the environment, like, including DDT and other chemicals, or like oil spills, they get coated around the plastic. 
it it makes me wonder if there's sort of any connection when you have Tupperware and you have it for a really long time and you put it in the fridge and then you take it out and you notice that the Tupperware sort of smells and sort of tastes like <laughs> the food that was in it a, lo- a long time ago. Yeah. Is is this somewhat of a similar effect with the ocean plastic, but like, you know, dangerous chemicals? Yeah, essentially, like uh, life basically can go anywhere when plastic are in the ocean, like animals, chemicals, they started attaching themselves to the surface of the plastic. So as the the plastic breaks into smaller fragments, the surface of area to its volume is actually a higher ratio than if it's a bigger piece of plastic. So more and more toxic chemicals are attached to it and gets entered into the our food chain eventually when something eats it. So it seems as if a small, very small micro, as we said, uh, problem is actually kind of a humongous problem. Yeah, it is. And worst thing is, why now we don't really have any solution to tackle it? Because oh, no. other than like big piece of plastic, sure, we can conduct cleanups and uh, yeah, mostly cleanups to remove them from the environment or put in little traps to keep them from entering the ocean. But what do you do with such smaller pieces, pieces of plastic? We don't know where they are. We can't see it until we see it, like look at them under the microscope. Yeah, I um, I know that every single time that I'm talking to like an evolutionary biologist or an ecologist, it's going to be, there's going to be a lot of bummers <laughs> that happen in the episode. So then let's move on to the part where we talk about, you know, what you can do about it. You are in ocean literacy. Now, oceans, I'm pretty sure they can't write, but they can wave. Oh, that was a bad joke. (laughs) Um, But uh, you are looking into marine management. How do we manage this kind of thing? Is there anything that we can do to potentially reduce the amount of microplastics in the ocean? Yeah, so ocean literacy's definition is actually um, your connection to the ocean and ocean's connection to you, which highlights the interdependency uh, of humans on the ocean. So for my ocean research, when people think about literacy, oftentimes they, they associate them with knowledge. But my graduate project actually aims look at different dimensions of ocean literacy beyond knowledge. So for example, I can go into a classroom and teach them about how bad plastics are, but that doesn't equate to them using less plastic at home, for example, or putting them, uh, dealing with their garbage appropriately so it doesn't end up in the environment either. So to me, I set up to look at ocean literacy from different dimensions that we call them. So other than knowledge, how do we connect people? So we would need to look at people's perception, their value, their culture, their identity. Um, What are their past exposure? What are their social norms? What are their barriers to their sustainable actions? And so on and so forth. Um, Yeah, so that was my research focus. So I ended up developing a very big evaluation framework to help guide the implementation of the Canadian Ocean Literacy Strategy, which was just launched in March this year. And it's the first 
comprehensive ocean literacy strategy in the world. So there's a lot of uh, attention being put towards this strategy and how Canada can be a leader in ways in the ocean literacy level of um, Canadian. And what we found was also that even though Canada is is considered an ocean nation with the longest coastline in the world and we reach three different oceans, a lot of people don't consider themselves connected with the ocean. But instead, we found that at least um, some of us can find our connection to water. And taking a step back, isn't watersheds eventually drains out into the ocean? So there is also just an ocean continuum that the ocean isn't just that blue portion that we see on our map. It's also, you know, all these different water bodies that are interconnected around the world. And then that was that was my master's research and on top of that you mentioned that I'm involved in several um ocean plastic, ocean lit letter initiatives and that is true. So I have a camp I have been wanting a campaign called Let's Talk Butts, which focuses on tackling the number one litter item in the world, which is cigarette butt litter. Um the issue I started that is because they are actually plastic items, as I previously mentioned, and that they just keep breaking down into microplastics into our environment. On top of that, it has all the toxin from a regular piece of a uh, cigarette. And we all know that smoking is bad, but no one ever associate them with all the cigarette butts littering into our environment um, with them leaching all these toxic chemicals into our waterways. And eventually, as you mentioned, as we discussed previously, it eventually end up our place into our soils, into any of the food we eat. Through this campaign, we've been working on ways in people's ocean literacy. <laughs> um, through educational outreach, we do a, a lot of cleanups and recently because of COVID, um, which restricted a lot of our educational activities, we started going out and collecting cans in the area and turning them into an art project. So we print them and they turn into what we call butt cans and we put them around our our neighborhood, our city to so smokers actually have a place to put their butts instead of littering them on the ground. So yeah, that's what we've been doing. And on top of that, I guess we've also been working on a ghost fishing gear project. Ghost gear, we are not talking about anything <laughs> spooky. So ghost gear actually lost, abandoned or discarded fishing gear that are in our ocean. So why I'm interested in them is that they are the number one litter item by weight. So cigarette butt is the number one litter item by, by number. This one is the number one litter item by weight. And on top of that, because they are fishing gear, they continue to fish. They are designed to kill, to capture fins. So when they ended up into our environment, they continue to fish either targeted or non-target animals, which actually leads to an economic loss 
or environmental loss. So economically, whatever fish that is caught in this ghost gear net is no longer being caught in Arctic gear. So that's uh, economic loss. And then environmentally, it's catching fishing indiscriminately. So they might catch endangered species or other non-targeted species, which is not good for our environment. And the last point I want to make is that when moving ghost gear is actually, to me, it, it is a battle against time because the longer they stay in the reef, other than continuously killing fish, it also eventually get incorporated in the reef. At that point, you will think that is it better if I remove the gear or or it's now become habitat that it should just be part of the part of nature. But that's not all, right? Um, anything in the ocean, it continue to break down into microplastics. So <laughs> this gear, if we leave them in the ocean, it continues to break down into smaller pieces. And yeah, who knows what happened to all those microplastics from ghost fishing gear down the line. We don't have a good enough knowledge of them either. But that seems like a certainly sort of complex issue. Yeah. Right. So you have this ghost fishing gear, uh, you know, nets and everything that have been, you know, left behind or polluted. And, you know, these nets, they're not autonomous. The nets aren't deciding to catch fish. No. Yeah. <laughs> they're just accidentally catching fish. And I guess, as you mentioned, it's also an economic thing because we're not profiting. No. off of the fish that they're catching no. they're just getting wasted because the fish get caught they i'm assuming like starve or or or, or physically die or something along mm -hmm. those lines mm -hmm. or like and... they become a a negative cycle right like the fish that is it die in this net or this uh trap it started attracting other fish to come here now those fish oh. are not going to this other net that can be fished out so it become a self-dating system that's in the ocean. So this is really interesting because you talked about how knowledge is not going to solve everything. I mean, gosh, if, if, if knowledge <laughs> about, you know, plastic pollution solved everything, there wouldn't be a single piece of plastic, you know, polluted. <laughs> because how many PSAs and, and, and classes in school and seminars and YouTube videos and advertisements have we seen about plastic waste? Mm -hmm. Millions. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you said knowledge isn't going to solve everything, and it hasn't. So if we're to frame this idea of ocean literacy from the, hey, fishing companies, you're losing a lot of money from this ghost fishing gear. Is that an approach we can take? Well, as you mentioned, a lot of times fishing companies don't want to lose their gear. This is mm -hmm. a short answer. Yeah. One, when they lose gear, they need to pay to replace the gear. Secondly, as I mentioned, it is an economic impact for them. So I wouldn't say it's the fault of the fishing company. A lot of times it is accidental. A lot of fishers are actually, they, they do try to use new technology or like new ways to fish to, you know, minimize the amount of fishing gear out there. But it's unfortunate that there are a lot of uh, ghost fishing gear in the world. And actually we estimate that 640,000 tons of ghost fishing gear enter the ocean every year. 
it is a big number and yeah and we estimate that it removes around 5 to 30% of our harvestable fish stock so it's not just impacting the environment and the economy it's also threatening food security and economic growth so yeah okay so i i've heard about waste from fishing nets before um and i was like oh yeah that's probably bad but this is so much bigger of an issue than i thought do you have off the top of your head any strategies as a marine manager to uh reduce the amount of fishing waste yeah it's a very complicated problem so i think as a manager that's two things we need to do one is whatever that's in the ocean it needs to come out two is that we need to stop any import of waste going into the ocean so cleaning up all this fishing gear there are a lot of effort going in right now to to remove um gear so i actually did come from a ghost gear meeting yesterday and we talked about a few strategies such as you know hotspot mapping well we need to find this gear in order to remove them and with that like there are different technology being used like side scan sonar or like um always that can see underwater that we can and just generally mapping out where the gear are so that you know we can send in the appropriate equipment to get them removed and then of course education is also a gap <laughs> so there are unfortunately also some misconceptions with some f- older fishers um that ghost gear can cause habit uh can create habitat and that a lot of places actually don't have proper waste disposal of end of the life ghost gear um end of the life fishing gear not ghost gear so guess what like they would be like okay we don't know where to put this where else can we put it the ocean is this big vast place outside our might that's why ghost gear is also defined as discarded gear right so there are also effort put into addressing this end of life problem like figuring out a way to recycle or upcycle this gear or giving um, fishers the opportunity or a place for them to bring in the gear or filling into this education gap that <laughs> ghost gear don't actually create habitat, it actually just continue to kill and so on and so forth. Yeah, and other efforts are also out there, like there are a lot of people on the water, so sometimes um, gear are lost because of entanglement. So like um, gear getting entangled into propellers and things like that. So as a marine manager, maybe that is actually something we can do is, you know, um, sub- spatially separating where the human activities are to minimize conflict, to mem- minimize gear loss. All right. So then if we are trying to put a big blanket over this, we're trying to sum this all up, which I understand that it's a big topic and you can't sum it all up in one sentence. 
Would you say that if we are going to try to help the oceans, we need to develop strategies to clean the ocean, smart strategies, not just, you know, combing the entire ocean and picking out the occasional plastic bottle, but we need to develop smart strategies to clean up the ocean. We need to come up with ways to prevent stuff from getting in the ocean, and we need to prevent things from getting into any body of water in the very yep, beginning. Yeah, that's, that's perfect, because some... Some places in the world, actually, a lot of their plastic, like up to 80% of it, come from a land-based source. So that also shows, shows that other than managing fins in the ocean, we need to manage fins in land so it doesn't get into any body of water, as you mentioned. Yeah, and humans are difficult to manage, but I think they're slightly easier to manage than carp and Yeah, <laughs> for sure. They're not team players. They never have no. No. All right. Well, thanks so much for talking with us today. I, I certainly have never discarded a fishing net in my life, um, and I won't. But now that I have a lot more information on it, I feel that I am a slightly more ocean literate. That's perfect. That's the goal to waste your ocean literacy. They say literacy is reading and writing, but you just heard all about ocean literacy and your ocean literacy gained. So I guess hearing is is good enough in this case. Lisa Chen just introduced the idea of ocean literacy to us and told us all about those nasty little microplastics that are hanging around in our water and other things like discarded fishing nets that are causing so much trouble in our oceans. And speaking of causing trouble, you know that we are always watching our backs. So now we are going to do a quick fact check for the episode, because we don't say everything always right every time we say it. The first fact check is that Lisa let me know after listening that she said that light only reaches about 200 meters deep into the ocean. For that, she was actually referencing the significant light, or the eutrophic zone of the ocean. In fact, light actually reaches up to 1,000 meters, but really not significantly after 200 meters. You know, light only goes so far, and yeah, there's light, but it's not a lot. Even still, 200 meters is like really, really, really deep, so I'm alone surprised that light goes that far. And the second and final fact check is on me. I said earlier that Lisa doesn't study ocean sounds, but she actually did. It's not the exact topic of what she's doing right now, but she has actually studied ocean noise pollution before. And that concludes our fact check for this episode. So we'll leave you on a final note. Stop littering. Thanks for listening to an episode of We Know Some Stuff.